Hey, welcome back to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Today I'm joined once again by Robbie Martin of Media Roots to discuss three topics in U.S. politics and foreign policy that are really relevant today, including Biden's recent announcement on Afghanistan, the U.S.-Mexico border crisis, particularly regarding migrant children, and recent revelations regarding the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Great to have you back, Robbie. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me back, Winnie. Well, absolutely. So since we're hoping to cover a lot today, um, I'm keeping the intro a little shorter than normal. So for those of you that don't know, Robbie, he is a documentary filmmaker, musician, and host of the Media Roots podcast, and also Mame Politics on YouTube. Uh, And not to inflate your ego too much, Robbie, but you are definitely one of the most well-versed people I know on the neoconservatives or neocons, as they're popularly called. Uh, And you have a great documentary series on their rise called A Very Heavy Agenda that I encourage everyone to check out. So one really important aspect you explore in that series is how the Bush-era neocons became or were closely connected to the Obama-era neoliberals. And since then, we've seen people like that from both of those administrations later hold prominent roles in the Trump and now Biden administrations. And one of the policy areas where these groups coalesce is the U.S. war in Afghanistan, which most people should know by now is the U.S.'s longest war ever. Uh, Given your knowledge of these intertwined foreign policy circles that have dominated uh, post-9-11 foreign policy in the U.S., who are some of the key actors and organizations that have allowed U.S.-Afghanistan policy to remain essentially the same for, you know, 20 years now? Well, it's a it's a hard question to tackle um, just because there's been so many people uh, over the years. But I'll start with uh, the main guy now um, who seems to be uh, creating some continuity between the Trump policy and the Biden policy is Zalmi Khaliazad, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, he is an Egyptian born, I believe, a member or former member of the Project for the New American Century. He was actually one of the only people in the Project for the New American Century of Arab descent. Um, and what's interesting about that, just in and of itself, is that uh, you know a lot of PNAC people at the time openly expressed things that could be argued to be racist views on Middle Easterners. There was sort of a dehumanized uh, prism that they would talk about Middle Easterners through. So. Uh, I just find that sort of unique that he that he was involved in that. And now he's actually part of um, the policy in Afghanistan. But, you know, a lot of people, I think, sort of in the last four years have gotten confused about Trump's uh, plans in Afghanistan because he, just like the Obama administration before him, announced plans to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan. This is sort of a promise that has been made to us since the Obama administration. And I think that just the reality of this, I'll just nest all of this answer in this, uh, and this is maybe a cynical point of view, but I, I'm pretty convinced at this point that the United States is never leaving Afghanistan. And by that, what I mean is we might superficially pull out, uh, you know, most of the troops at a certain point, But what remains there is this giant void, which we will then fill with private military contractors or even the establishment of a permanent, gigantic military base of some kind with like, you know, thousands of U.S. troops that would remain some kind of fortified, you know, miniature green zone within Afghanistan. Um, Yeah, I totally. Oh, sorry, not to interrupt, but um, I totally agree with you on that. 
on that assessment. <laughs> we can get into why later, uh, but go on. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but just in general, I mean, I think the Afghanistan policy, um, you can really blame a, a handful of people for the original plans to do this. And, uh, you know, it's the same people that you mentioned in your intro to me. It's the neoconservatives who already had plans uh, to not just inv- invade Iraq before 9-11, but they also had plans to invade Afghanistan before 9-11. Yeah. Um, and this is really largely unrelated to bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Yeah. The actual geostrategic reasons for occupying or taking over Afghanistan, uh, if you really look, lay out all the pieces and zoom out, and this is not even just from in, inferring things or even speculating, they've said this before multiple times, that a lot of these neocons over the years, I think even Paul, um, Paul Wolfowitz said this, I believe, uh, that he acknowledged the sort of, you know, um, Afghanistan presence is geostrategically uh, valuable to sort of combat China's dominance, um, that that occupying Afghanistan for as long as we have serves an additional, you know, purpose that people don't, we don't hear yeah. about much, which is to face China. And when also, you look we at ran, new- um, if I can just add that too, sure. because there's a yeah. lot of stuff, um, you know, Afghanistan has a border with Iran. And a lot of the competition between the U.S. and Russia, actually, over which Central Asian like pipeline projects they back, a lot of those pass through Afghanistan. And there's one that's allied with Iran and there's one that's allied, you know, with the U.S. and the neocons and all of that. So that may be, um, you know, part of that geostrategic importance, too. Um, it, you know, I mean, obviously with China, um, you know, that's that's separate but related. But it's definitely, you know, in terms of like the big um a showdown i guess you could say of superpower nations uh you know in the the u.s versus china and russia i mean afghanistan is definitely a key uh you know a piece of of that whole puzzle absolutely yeah and i mean if you look at the original rebuilding america's defenses document which i sort of became obsessed with because of its uh some you know seeming prescience about desiring or asking for a new Pearl Harbor in some sense in this document. A year before 9-11? Yeah, a year before yeah. 9-11 <laughs> to be a catalyzing event to be able to assert this sort of U.S. hegemonic vision that they are laying out in this document. And when you look at all the mm-hmm. nation states that are mentioned in the document, the one that actually is mentioned the most is China. So I think, you know, this is not just coming out of nowhere, this new pivot to China uh, it's it's been sort of right. under the surface for a really long time. It's like they had the long view on this. You know, these people are not just Machiavellian. They're also sort of into game theory and, you know, mapping these things out for decades ahead um, and gaming it out. And, you know, that's a sort of I think what we're seeing play out to some level now. Um, and I just wanted to mention one more thing about uh, what I, in relationship to China is that um it actually borders Afghanistan. China literally shares a border with Afghanistan. This is something I don't think most people even realize. There's a little sort of sliver of Afghanistan shooting off uh, to the side that goes past Tajikistan and Pakistan and directly into a border with China. Now that border um, with China that it shares, that Afghanistan shares, is directly in the Muslim uh, I be- and I'm going to botch the pronunciation, the Zhejiang region, uh, where they have uh, most of the Uyghurs live. Now, you know, that's not merely a coincidence that China is 
having this sort of draconian, seemingly draconian response. I'm not going to defend what China itself is doing in that particular region, but it does seem to be, it's more than a coincidence that, you know, we are occupying Afghanistan. We've been doing it for over 20 years and China seems to be having issues with people in the population that are basically directly in that border. There is a connection there. You know, we don't have to get into the weeds about it, but that's, you know, (laughs) Right. Well, really quick on that point, and you know, I don't want to really go into it either because I, I don't really, I haven't really written about that sure. issue, and I'm not really prepared to talk about it in depth. But I do know that the Uyghurs, there is, there is a presence of them in like the Syrian quote unquote rebels uh, in Idlib, yeah. right? So somehow they're getting, you know, from there uh, to Syria, and of course, there's obviously a big connection to Western military intelligence and intelligence, you know, with those quote-unquote rebels that, you know, uh, numerous people have reported on the ties there to, to different governments and intelligence agencies that that back, you know, their efforts to overthrow Assad. So it's interesting to see, you know, there's a pipeline there. Somehow they're somehow getting there. And, you know, the, the huge CIA presence in Afghanistan, which we can talk about later, um, because we still don't know how many CIA people are in Afghanistan. Of course. Um, the, they, they won't say, and they also won't say the nature of their activities. Um you know, in, in, in that country, um, a closely guarded secret said the New York times, <laughs> um, of that stuff. So, um, you know, it's definitely very possible, but, um, yeah. Anything else you wanted to add on that point? I mean, yeah, I guess just that we have to realize that the sort of humanitarian framing, uh, for regime change or to get us to look at another country and sort of, you know, throw venom at them or to think ill of another country. Um, this is, this is one of the most effective ways, uh, this sort of humanitarian angle by making people left and right be concerned about, or, or, or sort of believing that China is doing these horrible things to Muslims, possibly even committing genocide against them. Um, that is, that makes everything that's happening in the U S or that we're doing badly just seem like kind of an afterthought or minuscule in comparison. And I think, I mean, this is a very obvious purpose that this serves to constantly inflate this and to just get people to, you know, essentially be, or pretend to be concerned about it. Um, so I think that we just have to be really, con- we have to be focused on that moving forward because that's going to be the main in here to create this pivot. It's sort of like, the way that the neoliberals used the Russian gay law, you know, back in 2014 to start to get liberals to be anti-Russian, mm-hmm. that this is like that on like steroids. It's way more inflammatory. It's way more powerful. I mean, the idea of actually putting people in prison, uh, you know, and imprisoning them if they, you know, for being Muslim. And sterilization yeah, and stuff. So but, you know, I mean, in, in U.S. prisons in California, they were illegally sterilizing, you know, female prisoners without their consent and stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's it's always a super hypocritical narrative. Like also recently, uh, you know, U.S. intelligence and military intelligence was saying, oh, China's trying to gene edit, you know, their soldiers and make super soldiers when the U.S. has had a program to do that since 2002, yep. um, approved by Dick Cheney. <laughs> uh, to do that same thing for over 20 years and they just opened a new center that's super creepy in somewhere in Massachusetts, Natwick, I think it's called, to to test out a lot of this creepy uh, tech that they want to introduce into the military AI stuff Yeah. Um, for the super soldier stuff. And, you know, we're accusing China of doing that, but not acknowledging the U.S. has been doing that for over 20 years. I mean, obviously it's, it's hypocritical. So, yeah, it's always important to question... <clears throat> 
you know, narratives with those types of situations, especially when you see like in Hong Kong, for example, you have like the Falun Gong people and the Epoch Times types and and all of that stuff over there. I mean, there definitely, um, you know, is an effort to use that um, for political reasons. And so it makes it hard to really figure out what's true and what's not in, in those situations. A hundred percent. And I think ultimately it comes down to a matter of what is the media making us focus on and what is the amplification of what they're getting us focus on? Like to what scale do they want us to think that the what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs is the most important thing going on in the world? And it does seem like that they want us to believe that's the most important humanitarian crisis. Now, what's also sort of interesting about that is, and I'm not saying that Israel or the Israeli government had anything to do with this. But it is sort of fascinating how all this talk about China and imprisoning Muslims and even, Whitney, the idea that China somehow has their hand in our culture now and can censor our movies and things like that. This idea has been floating around. It's even spread on the Joe Rogan program. He says it almost every other day, you know, guest that he has on. He talks about this. So I think that all that stuff, it really is interesting because it makes people focus less on what's happening with the Palestinians, what's still happening with them, you know. It's mm-hmm. it sort of creates this other situation where it's like, oh, these Muslims are being put in concentration camps. Well, that in my brain means it's worse than what's happening to the Palestinians who are simply being occupied, you know, or whatever. Yeah. What about Gaza? Exactly. That's been a concentration camp since the blockade. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. that never we never got that term into our media landscape, but never got into mainstream media. That's sort of part of the point I'm yeah. making is it seems like Israel is also really benefiting from this. We still have an illegal gulag in Guantanamo Bay for Muslims that are never going to be given a trial or be be let out of jail. So that's also fascinating. It's like we're so now we're really not never going to close that because no one is going to talk about that anymore. Um, But I think that it's also interesting, Whitney, what you said about the super soldiers. And, you know, some people would be like, well, if you're you know, that's what about ism to, you know, talk about the what the U.S. is doing with super soldiers. But the there's a fascinating whole other dimension to all this where when you really get into some of the stuff that China does seem to be uh, allowing in their country, like their laws do not ban things like their CRISPR gene editing technology. Like we have yeah. laws that they cloned a baby yeah. over there. So, yeah, they go really far. Yeah, it's and, creepy. And I basically to just finish up what I'm what I'm saying here is that I think that we really have to look to how is that stuff happening? Is it really just the Chinese government just trying to push the envelope? Or are there maybe even Western elements and oligarchs and billionaires who are using China to actually do experiments Probably, yeah. that they cannot do in Western countries and are actually funding some of this stuff, including Absolutely. gain-of-function research on coronaviruses in the Wuhan Biosafety Level 4 lab? So, like, for all yeah. this... You had Fort Detrick there, uh, people visiting sure. that that lab in Wuhan, you know, calling for closer yeah. cooperation with the U.S. military and all of this stuff in, in just the past couple of years before, you know, the COVID thing. And uh, there's a lot of people who were really shady, who were really heavily invested in China, like Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone Capital, super involved in the Chinese economy uh, with Chinese banks. He recently bought Ancestry.com or Blackstone did to get access to all of that DNA data. Uh, that's going to be used for some of this creepy technology. Um, and, and there's definitely tons of other oligarchs that are super involved um, economically and, and otherwise in, in China. And um, a lot of it is um, either with like this Orwellian technology stuff or biotech 
Um, and really a lot of the stuff the U.S. military, like DARPA, for example, is trying to experiment with are, are really creepy. You know, recently they came out with that 60 Minutes special about uh, the filter for all your blood and the microchip under your skin that will know if you have COVID-19 mm-hmm. before you show symptoms. I, and I talked about those DARPA programs last year and people were like, that's crazy talk. And now it's on 60 minutes and it's like, oh, well, it's not that bad, you know, but yeah. you know, if they were saying, oh, the Chinese military produced a microchip, uh, to monitor COVID in people's body, blah, blah, you know, I mean, they'd fear monger about it otherwise, but it's fine if our military uh, does that sort of stuff, you know, I mean, they're really both marching to the same, um, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, where the federal governments in the West and in China are going is, you know, ultimately like a, you know, techno feudalism sort of style society. Um, that's, uh, you know, uh, definitely really disconcerting, um, for civil liberties and, uh, and a lot of other reasons. Um, but it's really about, at, I think at this point, which faction, you know, which, which country rather is going to get a bigger slice of the, of the spoils or the pie or who's going to be the hegemon in AI, um, who's going to have the best AI algorithms. And that, of course, is dependent on who is able to train their AI on larger masses of data than the other group. Um, and that's what a lot of this national security uh, talk about AI is, is about. Um, but before we get too, <laughs> too off topic here, uh, talking about that, um, I want to take things back to um, – Oh, Afghanistan, yeah. if that's cool. But before I, before I do that though, um, the thing on China, I think is really important to point out too, because it's really crazy what's going on with U.S. foreign policy right now. Um, you know, I don't follow it as closely as I used to, uh, with Mint Press, but, um, it almost seems like the Biden administration is trying to potentially uh, create a three front war right now. Um, you know, closer than ever with confrontation, uh, with Iran, uh, the situation in Ukraine, you know, which was, of course, the neocon, neolib group, uh, in the Obama administration where Biden was vice president. Um, and obviously he w- Biden himself was involved in, in those events. That was a proxy, uh, push to, you know, put a lot of pressure on, on, um, <clears throat> on Russia, the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO and all of this stuff. I mean, um, you know, uh, people are probably aware of that. But at the same time, those two are about to go off. There's also this, uh, these flare ups with Taiwan and, and the South China Sea and these other disputes in relation to China and also these, uh, Japan's new prime minister, um, saying that the, you know, the, I think it's a law. I can't remember some sort of political push there to get the Japanese military to be able to t- attack Chinese ships and stuff for the first time since World War too. Um, there's definitely a lot of moves going on over there. So it's really interesting when we're looking at Afghanistan, the fact that we have that China border with that particular region and also a border with Iran. Um, so I think this the, the interest in keeping uh, U.S. troops in Afghanistan, um, given Biden's other moves since coming in, in you know, uh, taking the White House, um, is a little different than maybe what Trump was hoping to do. Um, and of course, that requires a little bit of an analysis of um, what Trump's quote unquote peace deal was versus uh, Biden's version. Um, and uh, really, I people, especially now, people are talking about like, oh, the Trump uh, Afghanistan withdrawal. It was going to be on May 1st. All the troops were going to go out. Well, no, you have to go back to when that was announced and read the fine print of the deal. It was going to be 
in this uh, timeline from when they signed the deal to May 1st, it was going to be that troops are reduced from 12,000 to around 8,600. And then they said after that, if the Taliban behaved well over this time, this, this relatively short um, time frame, then they would take the rest of the troops out. But then actually, um, it came out from Time Magazine and also, uh, the Asia Times that those 8,600 troops were actually going to remain indefinitely as part of, as part of a semi-permanent counterterrorism force and that, uh, allegedly Taliban leaders would not agree to the demand in public, public, but in private. And so the Trump peace deal had four secret annexes tied to it that included uh, that provision and also a provision that no one knows the details of, but it was about um, what the CIA's activities would be in Taliban-controlled areas. So it was basically what I would assume would be um, sort of like profit sharing for opium and various other things um, between the CIA and the Taliban. Um, in those, in those regions. But I mean, that was totally left that nuance, right? <laughs> or the, the, those very clear, like footnotes, uh, you know, we're not in mainstream media coverage of that peace deal at all. And then you have all the neocons come out and say, Oh, Trump is awful for doing this, blah, 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 blah. Um, when really he's still going to keep, uh, thousands of troops there. So it's almost like the, the, push back against it is either for show or they want, you know, all 12,000 troops in there. Um, or maybe some other reasons, you know, like they don't want a uh, Taliban to be part of the, the opium circuit, the opium trade there. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it is really fascinating to look back on how the media mainstream media and like all the neocons, as you said, were like outraged about Trump proposing to withdraw troops. And even when you look at the fine print in his plan, it really doesn't seem like a really uh, a, an actual legit withdrawal. So I'm kind of confounded by that. And I just wonder if it was just all part of the same thing. It's just like they wanted to make everything Trump did look bad. And it didn't even really matter like what it was necessarily, like as long as it yeah. hurt Trump in the moment. It's like the Russian bounty thing in Afghanistan specifically. It's like they just walked that back, I think, today, Whitney, apparently. And yeah, yeah, they did. Course. After that was being everywhere 100%. in mainstream media and the mainstream media continues to report these like anonymous intelligence agents, they'll quote like one and that's like the whole source for the story and they'll just run with it and like un not question these people at all. And how many stories like that have turned out to be completely bullshit later? And we're the ones that get in trouble for fake news. It's insane. Um, but anyway, to, to, to follow that up about how Trump's peace deal really was, Biden's is really similar. It would allow the CIA to be there. It would allow contractors to be there. Uh, special ops, counter-terror people could stay on. It's just some uniformed troops would be moved out, but there would still be a U.S. presence there. And, um, <clears throat> But um, what's what's interesting, too, is that the fact that Biden moved the timetable automatically triggers uh, basically the destruction of any possibility at a peace deal, at least per the Taliban, uh, who came out uh, today. Uh, well, we're, we're recording April 15th uh, for, for those listening, because this podcast will probably be out tomorrow. Um, 
But uh, anyway, April 15th, the headline was uh, Biden's Afghan pullout breaches deal and will trigger, quote, countermeasures threaten Taliban. You know, so the Taliban are already saying, well, this violates the previous deal we negotiated with Trump. And the chief negotiator for Biden and Trump for Afghanistan is the same guy who you just mentioned, the former PNAC guy. Um, And... uh, you know, they negotiated with the same guy, but it's different administrations. I guess they don't understand why they have uh, to wait. But basically, Biden's administration knew. And this was pretty clear on from when Trump negotiated or the Trump administration negotiated and signed this deal, um, that this is how it was going to be. You know, if the U.S. didn't keep stick to their timetable and the original deal, then the Taliban were going to pull out and that was it, you know. And so the fact that Biden intentionally moves the timetable and they move it to 9-11 uh, that was obviously very intentional um, <clears throat> in, in terms of framing all of this. Uh, you know, the Taliban has uh, now threatened because of that timetable shift to 9-11 to attack the U.S. Okay. Uh, well, not attack the U.S., but attack U.S. troops in the area, right? So obviously that's going to give them the justification to stay there. And the way the original Trump deal was worded, uh, had all these like off ramps for, for people in the, in the Pentagon, um, to basically cancel the deal if they say that, um, you know, if they say the Taliban doesn't honor their commitments, uh, and among those commitments was refusing to no- negotiate in good faith, whatever that means, and like all these vague, um, you know, uh, rules about what the Taliban can and can't do. But some of it was like, you know, the Taliban doesn't have to do a ceasefire or anything like that, except for like one initial week of de-escalation at the, at the beginning. And, um, you know, it was just really, just a really odd deal, but that's why I think it's important to look at sort of the, um, the, the history um, you know, of U.S. policy in Afghanistan a little bit, because it starts to make a little more sense, um, about why this is going on, but it's still kind of, um, uh, still kind of hard to know exactly, um, you know, what the, what the angle is here, you know, for the Biden administration, like, why would they want to invite, um, you know, the, the end of this peace deal, because basically it sounded like the CIA and the Taliban had come to some sort of, uh, profit sharing agreement. And there were, there was all this, um, when the Trump peace deal was announced, all these, um, you know, this new war oligarch class that got really rich after the, uh, after the U S invasion who had been living in the United Arab Emirates had been against every, uh, plan for withdrawal before the Trump plan for withdrawal, which they like supported. And they said Afghanistan will be open for business. At the same time, the Trump peace deal was signed. Uh, you had like mainstream media. I think the Washington Post was saying something similar. Afghanistan's going to be open for business. Uh, it was written by a World Bank uh, lady who has like interests in the mining industry. Afghanistan is estimated to have over a trillion dollars of mineral wealth. Uh, worth keeping all of that in mind. So it seems some sort of way to sort of bring the Taliban on as a, as a faction, uh, for sort of this, um, uh, growth and development, quote unquote, that of course is going to be U.S. backed, uh, foreign direct investment and things like that and done by U.S. companies, um, and all of these things. Or at least that's how the, that deal looked to me. So I would assume in, in the case with Biden, if they want to intentionally scrap that deal, uh, the, the particular faction that surrounds Biden doesn't want the Taliban to be part of that, that deal or wants to keep that area really unstable, uh, because of what it wants to do in, um, you know, uh, in China and Iran. Like you, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Cause I, I originally used to have the thinking about this that, they just want to stabilize the region enough so that they can run like a pipeline through parts of it and also, 
you know, extract some of these rare earth minerals, for, you know, create giant yeah. uh, mines, mining operations, because you can't do that kind of stuff in a country where there's still a war happening, really. I mean, especially it was so unpredictable and yeah. unstable like Afghanistan is. So, but now I think that it's actually, it's worse than that. I mean, because if it yeah. was as simple as that, I feel like we'd already see more in that direction happening. And it just seems like this extended fucking protracted endless military occupation. It's like, what is actually happening here? I mean, it does seem to serve some really specific geostrategic purpose just to, for us to have a lot of military still there. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think um, if you look at the history, it's pretty clear that the main reasons, um, at least based on um, my research when I used to, to cover this more uh, for Mint Press, you know, for the U.S. invasion and for the enduring presence of the U.S., it, it basically comes down to uh, two main things. Uh, pipelines, uh, fossil fuel pipelines, and uh, the opium trade, uh, which obviously explains the CIA presence. If you know anything about the CIA and the drug trade. Um, <clears throat> but actually to look at um, some of the stuff, it's worth looking more at uh, this this guy from PNAC, Zalmai Khalilzad, or however you say it, I'm probably butchering it too. Um, that's been the special envoy uh, for Afghanistan for Trump and Biden, but he was also the special envoy for George W. Bush after the yes. invasion. Worth pointing that out. But going back even further, uh, this guy was also a major figure in Operation Cyclone, which was the CIA, CIA operation that started under the Carter administration, continued throughout the Reagan administration, was the one of the longest and most expensive covert CIA operations in the history of the agency, also involved Saudi and Pakistani intelligence. This was all about creating, arming, and financing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union presence. Um, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with this in terms of the origins of, of Al-Qaeda, right? But both Al-Qaeda and, and uh, the Taliban trace their origins back to this same uh, group that was trained and um, armed and, and funded by this uh um, the CIA operation, and at the same time that Khalil Zad was was part of that, he was also uh, the executive director of a support group for the Mujahideen that funded them that was called Friends of Afghanistan. And he was he's also a longtime member of the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, whose uh, basically their own founders have admitted they basically uh, fund groups uh, on behalf of the CIA because it would be bad optics for, quote unquote, pro-democracy groups to have like, um, you know, obvious CIA funding. Um, so that you know, is where this guy um, sort of comes from in a, in a sense uh, in, in that period of time. And it's interesting also that the Taliban's top negotiator uh, during the Trump deal was actually one of the, the people that was trained and armed as part of that uh, CIA operation. So, you know, it's uh, worth pointing that out. And there's a couple other points here that are pretty crazy. Like Khalil Zad um, was a, a, an active uh, supporter of the Taliban even after they took over um, the capital Kabul in 1996. Um, and not long after that, he argued in a, um, I, I think it was a Washington Post article saying that the U.S. should try and work with the Taliban uh, to make it a second Saudi Arabia, basically. Um, and sort of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, um, really even after 9-11, had been pretty close uh, to the Taliban and, but but anyway, in this period in the in the '90s, uh, there was covert support given to the Taliban during the Clinton administration. 
And it was pretty much supported by the U.S. intelligence uh, community as well. And part of this was because of this pipeline effort. Um, it was this U.S. energy company that was called, I think, I think you said it, uh, Uno, Unocal. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's not how you say it. Um, but now anyway, it's a subsidiary of Chevron now, but that was the name then. And they they were going to have this uh, 1.9 billion pipeline deal with the Taliban. And basically, I think it started in 1996 or 1997. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there, um, they invited all these Taliban officials to this luxury uh, trip in Texas. And they were meeting with top U.S. government officials. Uh, Khalil Zad was there and was one of the main guys of this uh, company's effort to court the Taliban. He was a special advisor to this company. Wow. Um, Which is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And basically, they couldn't get the pipeline to go through because the Taliban wasn't recognized by enough governments um, as like a legitimate government after they took over, um, the country. And <clears throat> eventually the Taliban started negotiating with a competitor to Unocal, which was this Argentinian company. Um, and that's when things started to, uh, fall through. <clears throat> and, um, uh, I forget where this article's from. Oh, uh, counterpunch article, um, from 2009, uh, talks about how it was only when the absolute control of, of that oil that that pipeline would carry was challenged that the Taliban regime began to be openly discredited by the U.S. government. Um, and one of the <clears throat> reasons allegedly for, um, um, Karzai, uh, Hamid Karzai being put in power after the invasion, uh, was because he was also a consultant to the same energy company that Khalilzad was, a, was an advisor to. And it was apparently this guy, Khalilzad, the peanut guy that lobbied for Karzai to be put in charge of Afghanistan after the invasion. And then just like, a week or two after Karzai is put in charge of Afghanistan, Khalil Zad becomes the special envoy for Afghanistan wow. uh, for the first time. Right. And it's also worth mentioning Karzai uh, was also involved in the Operation Cyclone financing. And his brother uh, got caught uh, doing all this uh, stuff with the opium trade on behalf of the CIA, helping the CIA recruit for their paramilitary forces and all this stuff. So anyway, this, this, uh, Khalilzad guy just has like a, a really interesting history, uh, with all of this stuff. And what's crazy too is that the, this pipeline, this Unical pipeline, they tried to start it up again when Harzai, Karzai was put in power. Um, but it, it eventually didn't work out. And there was this successor pipeline that, uh, the current Afghanistan and the, the Karzai government of Afghanistan were supporting that I think it's still around. You know, I don't follow these pipeline, uh, things as closely as I used to, but anyway, the, the competing ones in Afghanistan, at least recently have been, uh, one is called TAPI and one is called like IPI or IPI. I guess. So the first one is passes through from Tur- Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. And then the other one is Iran, Pakistan, India. So obviously <laughs> we know why the U.S. supports one over the other. And obviously in the TAPI pipeline, the U.S. is uh, much more invested uh, than you would think because the main backers are the Islamic Development Bank and the Asia Development Bank. But the Asia Development Bank, one of the main stakeholders is the U.S., even though they're not in Asia. So um, go figure. So anyway, obviously, the U.S. doesn't want the competing one with Iran to go through versus theirs. Uh, they're obviously trying to starve Iran of all sort of, uh, you know, fossil fuel based income. And Russia is backing that particular pipeline. So 
it just kind of, uh, you know, continues to be a key, a key piece of the puzzle there was a key point of the, of why the invasion probably happened, uh, aside from opium and one of the reasons that, that we've been there so long. Um, and the Taliban were actually attacking parts of this pipeline and they had sort of agreed, uh, to stop attacking it as part of this Trump peace deal. So that sort of gives us an insight into like, what they wanted from this quote unquote peace deal, not like necessarily lasting peace, but just mm-hmm. protection of property for these international business interests. And I don't know if Tappy is like this, but the, the Unical one that preceded it wasn't actually going to service uh, Afghanistan at all. Um, at least the, the market, like the natural gas or oil markets there. Um, it was all going to go abroad to other countries. So it wasn't going to benefit the nation of Afghanistan really at all. And it was, um, you know, backed by, it was being going to be run by this U.S. energy company that's now Chevron. Um, I don't know if the tap, if success, its successor was going to be the same, but, you know, just kind of interesting to, um, to note that because it was obviously, you know, something that would benefit the West <laughs> originally anyway, yeah. in its original form and not anyone else really. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much more to unpack about Afghanistan. I don't know how much more you want to talk about it, but I just wanted to mention uh, that when the Bush administration decided to start bombing Afghanistan after 9-11, um, their rationale for doing it was largely based around the idea that they had been lauded and they wouldn't give him up. Um, although there's really no official like wording that says this is why we bombed. It's actually, well, that was you know, the perception just, given to the public. I yeah, feel like more than was, anything totally, else. Yeah. yeah. But, but the reality is, I mean, this was even covered in the guardian. It was covered pretty much on a lot of mainstream media channels. Um, dozens of them. It's basically that the Taliban actually offered to hand bin Laden over and, uh, they repeatedly did. They continued to offer to hand him over even after uh, they were being bombed. So they didn't they didn't like say immediately, well, fuck this. You know, we're not going to give up bin Laden after they started being bombed. They actually continued to two weeks into being bombed to actually offer bin Laden if the U.S. had any evidence. Well, the the uh, U.S.'s response was that it was a non-negotiable offer. Um, to, to, so they so, wouldn't provide evidence of bin Laden's involvement in 9-11 is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, but what's even to me more incriminating than that, Whitney, which I think even gets talked about less, is the fact that we openly announced that we were basically going to give bin Laden like a two-month head start to just get out of there and, you know, two months basically to allow him to escape or his people or whoever his people were in Afghanistan at that time. And it just seemed like it was really obvious that we weren't actually there to get. Bin well, Laden. yeah, and totally. Maybe in some ways we actually wanted him to escape. Why would you warn the main supposed enemy behind? 9/11, well, I mean, uh, that you were giving him two months. Just look how useful. You were just look him. how useful Al Qaeda has been to the U.S. since 9/11. The U.S. is currently yeah. supporting uh, Al Qaeda branches in Syria and Yemen. You know, it's basically like Al Qaeda's yeah. uh, the ally of the U.S. except when they're not, and they're the enemy of the U.S. except when they're not. I mean, you know. And what about so? What about Zawahiri? How come there was never any push to take him out if he's the actual leader of Al Qaeda? Like Bin Laden was just the pretty face and the, you know, the rich guy that was involved in Al Qaeda. Zawahiri is like the main. He was the guy who started it. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, he's still alive. It's like what? Like why is it? What's, where is he right now? Like, I don't even fucking know. Where is he supposed to be? 
I, I mean, obviously, you know, all of this stuff, uh, you and I know, and probably a lot of our listeners know that the war on terror was never about the stuff we were told about. And there's all this other stuff <laughs> yeah. going on behind the scenes. Um, but I mean, you're absolutely right in that the war was never about getting bin Laden. Um, as an, uh, as one example, uh, given, uh, beyond what we've already mentioned, uh, to support that point is the fact that the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was the first war in U.S. history where the group that planned the invasion wasn't the military, it was the CIA. And the first boots no on the ground in Afghanistan were from the CIA Special Activities Division. And that's why it is crazy that, um, you know, given that extreme involvement of them at the beginning – you know, uh, we still don't know how many CIA people are in there or what they're doing. Closely guarded secret, remember? And every quote unquote sure. withdrawal deal or peace deal um, that's come out in the past couple of years allows all of them to stay. And and creates ways for them to operate more deeply in Taliban territory. It's just uh, interesting because the Taliban, from what I understand, are really embedded in the border with Pakistan um and probably other parts i'd have to um look more closely at that but it may have to do with some of the, those border dynamics that we were talking about um earlier sure and I, I also think there's just a real sad element to all this too whitney because i i think that there's something about afghanistan where it's like we like westerners in general they just almost like can put it out of sight out of mind even much easier than the iraq war because in some ways it's harder to relate to people who like live like the Afghanistan people. Like it's, it's yeah. something about it that it almost just is automatically sort of dehumanized and detached feeling to like Westerners because we don't live that, you know, we were like way more quote unquote civilized or whatever. And I think that that's plays a big role in it. And, you know, there's this also, um, it's just also sad that I think in general, the American people, even though they agree, you could probably find polls right now that will say that we've been there too long, we should get out, that maybe over 50% agree with that now. But I still think it's very hard to even find people in the anti-war community who will admit and who will actually be able to say that it was based on a lie, it was a completely immoral war, it was completely unnecessary. I think a lot of people even in the anti-war community feel on some level that was somewhat of a just war. And even though there we've occupied it too long, but like there's no accountability, I think, for how it was based on a lie like there. We didn't want we didn't really want to get bin Laden. Isn't that obvious when you just lay out all the facts? I think it is pretty obvious. So why is that accepted still just even as like a subconscious thing? I think people should really reckon with that, that that's there was a lot of manufactured consent for that war, even just among regular people, you know. Even a lot of people on the left. Yeah. So. Well, it was it was closer in time to 9-11 than I think Iraq was. And I think most people made up their mind about what that war was then and have chosen not to reevaluate. Um, you know, that yeah. would be uh, my my opinion in, in that case. But um, no way this has been <laughs> a just war. This has been a war, you know, uh, to enrich um, oligarchs in the case of the, the pipeline a situation or, you know, just to, uh, for the global opium trade, you know, it's worth pointing out for people that, that don't know, you know, uh, during operation cyclone, this thing during the Carter and Reagan administrations, uh, the CIA was involved in drug running then, 
um, and turned a blind eye towards illicit, uh, illicit opium trade in Afghanistan the whole time uh, Operation Cyclone was going on. Of course, the CIA had been involved in the trafficking of drugs, specifically opium and heroin, since the late 40s. Uh, Papa Bush, when he was CIA director, was involved in that. Then he becomes Reagan's VP. Iran-Contra drug stuff is going on. You know, Operation Cyclone is going on. Um, opium cultivation explodes during this period of time as well, uh, relative to how it was before. And similarly with 2001, you have uh, the opium production in Afghanistan explode after the invasion. Um, but what some people may not remember, though, uh, a lot of my listeners probably do know this. Um, in 2001, uh, before the uh, September 11th, of course, uh, the Taliban uh, announced a ban on opium cultivation, which saw all <laughs> like uh, most of the opium fields in the country uh, stop producing. And, uh, you know, that was obviously uh, not good because even then Af Afghanistan was still producing a majority of the world's opium, not as much as it is now. Um, and it's gone up since then. Um, I think it's been between uh, the invasion and like 2017, it was a 4,000% increase in opium cultivation. That is insanely huge. And it's been growing every year. And now we have Afghanistan supplying like 90% of the world's opium, but also, you know, opium for opioid, uh, you know, uh, derivatives, of course, in the US since 2001, there's been an ever expanding uh, opioid crisis that has actually gotten worse in the past year. It's not getting a lot of media coverage, but all the data indicates that that particular crisis in the US is getting even worse, probably because of mm -hmm. lockdowns and shutdowns and all of that. I'm obviously not going to help, um, you know, people suffering from from addiction to those substances. And just circling back really quickly to back to China, I think that a lot of that fentanyl coming in from apparently Chinese chemists, you know, manufacturers from China into the U.S. is, is also just absolving a lot of the pharmaceutical companies here that got people hooked on a lot of the stuff in the first oh, place. A man. lot of people I'm glad. never got on, you know, even never got on to street uh, opioids. They, that mo I th I'd say, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are actually out there, Whitney, but I'd say a, the majority of people in the country here are actually addicted to pharmaceutical Manufacturing yeah, it's opioids. like fentanyl and stuff. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But yeah, what's really crazy about what you just brought up about the China fentanyl connection, do you know what until very recently, uh, until I guess uh, January 2020, uh, the world capital for raw materials to make fentanyl was? No. Wuhan, China. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, after, you know, all, everything that happened there uh, a year or so ago, um, that totally shook up the fentanyl supply chain globally. Pretty interesting. Also interesting, uh, 2019, um, uh, Tiva Pharmaceuticals was about to get hit with a bunch of lawsuits um, about their role in the opioid epidemic. They're an Israeli company that used to be owned by the Bronfmans and Robert Maxwell. But today, uh, their biggest shareholder is uh, Warren Buffett's firm. Uh, and Warren Buffett, of course, um, if you don't know, is uh, one of the three trustees or three main people at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bill Gates' best friend uh, by Bill Gates' own admission, right? So um, that uh, was the company that was about to take a huge hit 
Uh, for that, and, and, and oddly enough, uh, in the COVID era, uh, one of the most prescribed drugs, including in cases of COVID, uh, has been fentanyl. Uh, that's interesting. And also Tiva uh, made a huge comeback in terms of uh, morale and whatever, uh, or, or sorry, PR, they're like public image um, and stuff with hydroxychloroquine, which they're the main producer of as well. And they actually donated uh, and lobbied heavily uh, the Trump administration about hydroxychloroquine use uh, last year. So pretty interesting uh, talking about the fentanyl dynamics in the modern, uh, <laughs> in the last year or so. <laughs> I de- there's a, d- a lot of weird stuff about that that I'd really like to dig deeper into at some point um, just because of a, a history yeah. of intelligence agencies uh, using a fentanyl uh, based, um, substances as poisons, uh, that mimicked sure. respiratory illnesses. Um, and you know, how these weird COVID supposed COVID cases that were popping up in, um, Iran, um, early on and how, you know, Iran's parliament got wiped out and stuff. They were appearing at old nuclear sites and all of this stuff. And, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was this case, I think in the late nineties where Mossad tried to assassinate, um, the head of Hamas with this, um, this fentanyl, uh, based poison. And then relatively recently, there have been neocons saying that Iran is going to use, uh, fentanyl as a chemical weapon to attack people. Uh, so it's interesting to see all these things going on. Makes you wonder if there's a, a bigger story there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, you know, I hate to use a word like pre-programming, but when you see stuff like that out there in the media, it's like, why are they saying that? You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, even just, uh, just randomly Kamala Harris, uh, a couple few days ago said that like, we fight, we fight wars over oil, but we're going to be fighting them over water. water. Like, what, just saying the, the quiet say part that? out loud. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just so creepy. These people just are on another planet. They're so out of touch, you know, with regular people that it's like, did she just say that off the cuff? Was she in some think tanker meeting? Was she, was that scripted? Like what in the hell was she saying that for? (laughs) Right, right. But to go back to this fentanyl thing really quick, I think it's really interesting how in those areas of Iran, uh, you know, how, how COVID initially spread there and also hit in Wuhan initially were really different than happened anywhere else. You know, like those, the people collapsing, um, on the street and dying like in 24 hours and all of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, as supposedly, you know, the in- initial outbreak in Wuhan, it was right before Chinese New Year. People were traveling everywhere. But from what I understand, I never saw videos of people collapsing in the street for other cities in China. Um, you know, you would assume that would be the case, right? Or like the the extreme severe, severity of what happened in, in in Wuhan wasn't really replicated from what I understand in Chinese cities on that scale. And the same thing with what would happen in Iran. Why weren't other surrounding uh, countries, you know, um, you know, hit in, in the same way during that time? And then you have the CIA guys during the Trump era, you know, last year. Um, come out and say, uh, these extreme outbreaks in, in China and Iran are a great opportunity for recruitment and all of this stuff, like openly saying, um, that they're, you know, in really involved in what's going on in those countries. I mean, it really makes you wonder, uh, you know, <laughs> how, how this whole crisis started because we really don't know, right? Um, and anyone who says they know, um, you know, I don't really agree with them. Uh, because there's there's a lot of shadiness, especially around uh, big world changing events like this. Um, there's either a lot of shadiness in the origins um, or in in the stuff that comes shortly thereafter, where there's different uh, you know factions of the of the power elite trying to take advantage and and you know milk the opportunity and what have you. 
And I really don't think what's going on now is any different. And just the scale is really different than anything we've ever seen before, I think. Yeah, you don't have to be somebody who thinks that the virus is fake, which I definitely don't think. I think it's real and I think it's mm-hmm. it's dangerous. It's just, you know, my I think I've just had to co- cope with the fact that the the thing that affected me the most is the media definitely, you know, on all sides originally made this seem like it was going to kill millions and millions of people in in the United States. It was it was definitely overhyped in that regard, but I mean, I think it's clear if you're able to just separate the, even the politics from it, it's not even you don't even have to look at politics to just see on on uh, you know everything in front of you that the virus and this whole situation will just cause any nation state um, to basically leverage power over their own people, including the United States, um, including the UK, including mm-hmm. you know wh- wherever else, um, Chile, uh, and then also uh, you know corporations are going to you know, clean up and, and the rich, you know, even just on a low level, you don't even have to be super rich to even profit off of this in some regard. I mean, there's definitely people, you know, who knows what kind of stories we're going to hear about of, you know, these giant, you know, fire sales that have gone off on even just real estate or, I mean, you know, what the profit motive, actually how bad it was for these pharmaceutical companies to make an obviously rushed vaccine. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, you know, how much, how much money is actually on the line? It's like this has not been open sourced yet. If it really was about public safety, then release the vaccine and how exactly it was made for everybody to see. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's not the case yet. So it's that that's I mean, you have to just question that on its face. Well, I think from the beginning, so, the, these vaccine camp companies uh, and in the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine, this is abundantly clear that this was the case, that they plan to make their money by having the covid vaccines be something that that was a an occurrence every six months that you would have to get a new shot boosters. every six months yeah. indefinitely for as long as 10 years, they were saying. And that's where a lot of these companies plan to make most of their money. Um, was by having it be, you know, just a fact of life. And so I think that's why, you know, there's probably why the pharmaceutical industry is obviously going to back this vaccine passport stuff, because if you tie um, continued vaccinations to some sort of huge incentive, like, oh, you're allowed to go here and do these activities if you continually sure. receive these things, um, you know, obviously that's a huge built-in thing for these pharmaceutical companies. And these, these com- I mean, people just, I, I just don't think they realize how predatory they are. I'll give uh, an example about the company I probably know, a pharmaceutical company I probably know the most about because I've written about them a lot. Emergent Biosolutions, who were the manufacturers of most COVID vaccines in the U.S. until recently when it turned out they bat- they they totally botched, I think, 15 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Oh, that was them? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was telling oh, wow. people a year okay. ago that these guys are dirty as hell and it's going to cause major problems and what do you know? Do you think that it's there was maybe... Have you speculated about that maybe being some kind of intentional act to sabotage the Johnson & Johnson one? I honestly don't the Johnson know. The Johnson & Johnson one? Wasn't the Johnson & Johnson one supposed to be just a one It's a done? single dose. Yeah, but it still yeah. is going to be every six months like all these other I ones. Yeah, yeah. But okay. it was just yeah. instead of two. God, every six months. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's worse than a flu shot. So at least a flu shot's like every yeah, year. Yeah, but the flu shot it? is also like voluntary and you can – before yes. you were allowed to go still go to concerts if you didn't get it or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so I think this is a little, a little different. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, Emergent Biosolutions, uh, just to give you an insight into the mentality of this company, I definitely want to refer people to my work on them from last year so you can see how they handled the anthrax vaccine with U.S. troops and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. I mean, really egregious. Um, their, an their safety. Vaccine, it, well, it was being used uh, experimentally by the military on soldiers, and the Pentagon actually mm-hmm. lost a lawsuit on this because it was an off-label use. Um, and there was very insufficient safety uh, tests of really none of this particular vaccine. And it's just uh, really insane, the track record that company has. But going back to what we were just talking about a second ago, the opioid epidemic, emergent biosolutions until very recently losing this um uh, losing their their monopoly uh, on uh, well, I'll get into that to to a second. So until very recently, Emergent Biosolutions had the monopoly on Narcan, which is the uh, only uh, drug you could administer uh, to someone having an opioid overdose to like bring them back basically. Um, And so basically Trump and now Biden's entire opioid crisis policy is getting just flooding all these places with Narcan. Right. As, Mm, as a, not actually like addressing any of the root issues or going after the pharmaceutical companies. I mentioned Tiva a while ago, Tiva, Tiva pharmaceuticals, how they um, were going to be targeted by the department of justice for their role in the opioid crisis and all of this stuff until they had their magic hydroxychloroquine uh, donations (laughs) Um, and all of this stuff. But they actually uh, sued emergent biosolutions for the monopoly on Narcan and now they can produce it as well. So feeling the opioid crisis and now Tiva can sell cheaper Narcan than emergent biosolutions. And anyway, these people are fucking crazy profiting off of death. But anyway, emergent biosolutions, their CEO talking about Narcan, Narcan was giving this talk and he was saying how he views high schools and colleges as untapped markets for Narcan. And so this guy is actively saying, um, you know, uh, it's good for business if there's opioid overdoses among <laughs> teens and, and stuff for my company. Like these are untapped markets. We need to get more, you know, uh, Narcan needs to be more in demand in high school and colleges and stuff. I mean, that's just like sick, dude. Uh, the way they talk about, uh, these executives talk about these real crises or real issues. I mean, they just see, you know, human suffering in the case of the opioid crisis is like, oh, yeah, this is great for business. And there's a lot of companies that really directly profit from that in the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, in the case of emergent biosolutions, these are the same companies being trusted with uh, the manufacture or development um, of, of the vaccines. You know, Johnson & Johnson, for example, um, knew they had uh, asbestos-causing chemicals in their baby powder for decades and covered it up. Just like happens with like Monsanto knowing that uh, glyphosate uh, causes cancer and covering it up. You know, I mean, I don't know why people um, are putting blind faith in these companies, especially when they've been given complete freedom from any sort of liability with what the, these vaccines do, um, whether it's emergent biosolutions with their horrible safety and product track record doing it. I mean, giving them zero liability is insane. In and of itself, if you look at their track record, I mean, it's just, uh, and it's crazy that like you, you try and criti- bring up these valid criticisms of these companies, you know, even if you're just arguing, can anyone else but this one company make the vaccine or something like that? You're treated as an anti-vaxxer now. You know, there's like no yeah. nuance in the debate at all. They've tried to make it as black and white as possible. I find that super dangerous. I mean, I almost think that that's to me one of the most dangerous immediate after effects of what's happened after the pandemic it's it's that 
uh, you can already feel that pe- there's an enormous amount of pressure to not want to seem like you're an anti-vaxxer. Or no, yeah, or that you're well, a everyone is prefacing denying. the like criticisms, legit criticisms of big pharma with "I'm not an anti-vaxer," but exactly, since yeah. when did we have to do that? I mean, it's it's unsettling. I mean, the fact that they Instagram would just ban Robert um, F. Kennedy Jr.'s account because he was questioning the vaccine. I mean, I think that that's you know that's almost kind of to me as bad as like banning Trump on Twitter. It's like you're banning like a guy who's like probably the most credible person out there right now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's questioning the vaccines. And uh, that's um, that's pretty bad. Yeah, well, I mean, if you actually bothered to read the stuff that he puts out or his organization, Children's Health Defense, puts out, um, you know, they, they source their stuff and they talk to experts. I mean, they're not just like bloggers. I mean, the, the lady that runs their site, you saw, founded EcoWatch, which is like a really well-known environmental news, uh, you know, watchdog journalism site. Uh, you know, I mean, they're definitely very professional about what they do. I just, you know, obviously some people don't like their conclusions, but there is a lot of safety issues in the vaccine industry. And a lot of people, you know, have just, uh, you know, covered their ears when that information has come up in, in the current era, just because it's, you know, um, maybe inconvenient to the narrative they prefer about certain things. Or I think, you know, it just comes down to, in some cases, some people just want the vaccine to be perfect and the quick ticket out of this mess instead of facing reality, which I can't really blame them for. I mean, it has been <laughs> a crazy year or whatever, you know, but we can't put our blind faith in, in the wrong people because, you know, I mean, people on the left in the U.S., a lot of them did that voting for Biden a couple months ago and look where we are now, you know, pretty much uh, it's basically, you know, how much is different between Biden and Trump at this point um, in terms of policy. It's really hard to make distinctions, you know. In the case of Afghanistan, yeah. like we're talking out, or we can move on uh, to another topic here, which is this uh, border crisis stuff. Um, well, I just wanted to mention uh, one more thing oh, sure. about the vaccine mm-hmm. is that, um, I mean, I think when you look at the statistics of how many Americans are already vaccinated, it's pretty surprising. I mean, and I don't know if that's just because the amount of fear that was pumped out here in the United States, but it's it's surprisingly high. It's something like... I don't know, the last time I looked, there's something like 30% of the population mm-hmm. is already vaccinated. I mean, that's that's pretty surprising considering how poorly America did handling the initial, you know, effects of the pandemic. So I don't know what to make of that, but I do think it has a connection to the fear mongering and the media here and how scared people are here, um, even though it hasn't really hit us. You know, I mean, yeah, a lot of people have died from it here, but it's it's not as quite as severe as the media um, was claiming it was going to be. So, right, right. Well, I mean, I just I just really wish that especially on on the left in the US that there was more room for discourse like this about these types of topics. But it's like you even bring up anything uh you know, that can be remotely deemed critical uh, of the COVID vaccines. And immediately it's like, you know, you're a tinfoil hat wearing crazy kook or something like that. And I just think that is so not good because, you know, these are the same pharmaceutical companies that have done a lot of really awful things over the years. And it's just really crazy to act like they are, you know, they never do anything wrong. And there definitely are cases um, of uh, um, of like vaccines that, you know, if, for example, in the West, the US or the UK or the EU are found to have damaging side effects, they're taken off the market. 
and then a new vaccine that's safer is, is put out there. Um, and, but then the previous one that was found to be unsafe in these Western countries is then by groups like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is given in mass to these uh, countries in the developing world. Uh, this is, this happened, for example, with the polio vaccines. In the U.S., the one used in Chile, for example, in Africa, um, is not the one used in the U.S. anymore. It used to be, but is no longer that. And now in Africa, they found that it's causing more polio cases than it's supposed to be preventing because it's a live virus, whereas the one used in the U.S. is not. It's an inert one. So, um, wow. you know, I mean, that type of stuff happens all the time. It also happened, too, with what is now in the U.S., the, the DTAP uh, vaccine used to be DTP, but they still make DTP and they send it to the third world. Um, cause even though they knew it wasn't safe enough to have on the market in the U.S., they're sending it abroad. I mean, this type of stuff happens in the industry all the time and we need to recognize the industry for what it is. And, uh, zero liability is a bad call, um, for these guys cause they're just going to gun it for profit in that case. And, and people that are actually like pro vaccine, um, should be the first people to say this stuff and not be advocating for complete liability. So I think that's pretty weird, um, that you haven't seen more people like add, you know, bring up these points. Um, because if you care about, um, you know, vaccines, you should care about vaccine safety. Um, and accountability for giant pharmaceutical corporations uh, that intentionally make ones that aren't good or make ones that come on the market that are found to be unsafe. They should be taken off the market everywhere. Absolutely. You know, not just sent somewhere else. So, you know, uh, again, just another topic that's been made um, nuance free <laughs> by the current yeah. uh, media environment. And that totally goes for independent media as well, because, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. It's getting harder and harder to watch uh, people, even independent media now. It seems like everyone's kind of losing their minds. Yeah, definitely. And I do think the left has um, dropped the ball on this issue to a, an unfortunate extent. I mean, it does seem to be that it's a lot of right wing reactionaries who resist this kind of stuff when it comes to COVID or it's like conspiracy people instead of just like, you know, we're not having like very many grounded. It's just that it just, yeah, the fact that you can get shut down on social media now and your accounts taken away for talking about this stuff is just that's that's in and of itself causing a chilling effect. And that's really bad. I got taken off of yeah, Patreon. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, over this, yeah. And if I hadn't, uh, you know, set up an account on Rod Rockfin as a backup to Patreon, uh, I would be out of business. Uh, I mean, Just that's really wild. Awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thankfully, the three people that were taken down that I know of it at the same time as me, well, including me, uh, it was me, uh, Ryan Christian, and James Corbett. Uh, you know, they both also had backups. So, you know, obviously... The three of us are still going to be making content, but it's pretty crazy that they, you know, would not censor me on my main platform, I guess, which is Twitter, you know, but they would, they would censor me financially, but not uh, on Twitter. I just think that was kind of telling, <laughs> you know, sort of like yeah. behind the scenes, try and cut off my, um, you know, income so I can't continue doing this work instead of, uh, you know, censoring me in a way that would draw attention to me. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Uh, it's strange. It, it raises a lot of questions. I mean, we I me and Abby have a mutual friend who was just visited by highway patrol plainclothes officers. They said they were sent by the Capitol Police because he sent a quote unquote death threat to a sitting congressperson. He just he sent a tweet about AOC uh, waffling on an Israel question. And so this I mean, this kind of stuff is a uh, 
there's some weird stuff happening in this country. And I don't think you can, it's never, I think, I don't think you can ever say you're being too paranoid about, especially if you're being shut down when you're putting out controversial content and trying to get people to ask these kind of questions. Right. Um, Good point. So who the fuck knows? Hey, well, you you brought up AOC and we were just talking about topics that no longer have nuance, especially with the left. So why don't we talk about what (laughs) we plan to talk about regarding January 6th? Now seems like a good time. Um, So um, we didn't want to go too deep into into that stuff because we talked about it a lot about it a lot in a previous podcast. But there has been an update pretty recently um, about how the Inspector General report for the U.S. Capitol Police confirms that there was a stand-down order during January 6th, um, which, you know, which we knew absurd. was going on at the time, and we talked about it um, the last time, yeah. uh, you know, we spoke on the podcast, but, um, you know... But we just didn't have confirmation. I mean, the only confirmation we needed was our own eyes yeah. <laughs> and, and how it actually happened. They wouldn't have been able to get into that building if there was a normal amount of protester like security precautions mm-hmm. there just wouldn't have happened so we already knew it on a gut level it's just but yeah now we have some form of proof yeah and you know i'm really wondering where the accountability is going to come from this report but anyway uh just to give a summary to, to listeners about what this report was um so multiple press outlets mainstream media outlets uh viewed sections of uh, a law enforcement sensitive report by the inspector general um, uh, Michael Bolton <laughs> makes me think of office space. Maybe this is his Sweet. new job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the report is titled review of the events surrounding January 6, 2021 takeover of the U S Capitol. Um, anyway. And so basically what he concludes in that is that police on the front lines, um, of this whole Capitol event were forbidden by their leadership from using what they say were the most effective crowd control tactics and equipment um for that particular event. So this is really interesting that it's coming out now because after January 6th, the head of U.S. Capitol Police at the time uh, resigned pretty quickly a couple days later, and there wasn't a big fuss about it because the stand down hadn't been reported then, but is being reported now after he's been gone for three months. I think that's a little interesting. Uh, so any any it is, yeah. any thoughts on that before I uh, move on? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I I could see both sides having been invested in wanting there to be not enough security there. I could see people on the on the faction that wanted Trump out, that wanted something finally to make him look as bad as possible, letting that event happen in order to just put throw the hammer down on him afterwards. Then after that, you know, you could ban his Twitter account, you could do whatever, and people would be like, yeah, it's justified. Well, and his supporters, too. You know, I don't think for it was sure. just about yeah. Trump. I think a big part of it was really, like, at least for, you know, you know, MSNBC liberals <laughs> to, to vilify Trump supporters even more to them. Like, to make them really afraid of them, in a way. Like, irrationally afraid of people that, you know, might have a Trump hat on or something. Well, yeah, it's, it makes... I, I do think there's a straight line or there's a line you can draw all the way back from QAnon all the way to, you know, what happened on January 6th. And I, I think that the feds in this country at least had to be fully aware of how many people were following QAnon, how many people were, you know, doing all this stuff. Even the people who run 8chan, 
Well, yeah, because, I mean, well, it was a PSYOP backed by the U.S., so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they knew. Yeah, it had to have been on some level let happen on purpose, mm-hmm. you know, at the very least. So um, that's, I guess, all I have to say on it. I mean, even just the existence of 8chan, like the guys who ran 8chan, I mean, they ultimately had control over QAnon. And yeah. To think that the feds weren't aware of everything they were doing, it would be naive. I mean, Absolutely. I, I think they had to have known. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. just sort of strange when you look back at all of it, Whitney. Well, also another interesting thing that January 6th did, too, is that a lot of, you know, I'll call them MSNBC liberals, but you know who I'm talking about anyway, um, sort of conflating supporting Trump with being a white nationalist. Uh, when that is definitely yeah. not true. And that came, of course, from what I would argue were really like mainstream media uh, optics, I guess, of, you know, really focusing yeah. in on people that wore inflammatory stuff or like showed, um, you know, uh, white supremacist symbols or whatever. But, you know, if you think about it, the, the amount of people that were like that um, or the guy with zip ties or, for example, you know, that was probably that was definitely under 10, probably like five tops really scary individuals like that and there were hundreds of people that went into the capitol so it's like really not a fair um characterization either and considering the stand down order and the videos of them letting people in you know this is something that was allowed to happen yeah. and that gave you know as, as people that were there have said gave the impression that they were invited in and were legally allowed to be there so is it really a takeover is it really a coup attempt um at, at that point it seems more like a setup to launch a new war on domestic terror and on that point this the guy that presumably issued the stand down order who was the head of DC uh, police at the, or sorry capital police um at the time uh, Stephen Sund is his name um so what's interesting about him you know you look up his his biography for example his official one um, for the Capitol Police, uh, you know, on the U.S. government websites and whatever. Um, you know, from 2019, there's his biography. It only mentions uh, his work for um, <clears throat> the the D.C. police and the different positions in law enforcement he's held. But it doesn't mention any of his work in the private sector, which I think is pretty interesting because from 2016 until apparently he was recently reappointed uh, or recently brought back into law enforcement to head the Capitol Police, not that... Uh, uh, long ago, really, um, <clears throat> he was hired to be the business development director at a company called Noblis. Noblis is um, a national uh, security and intelligence business development company. And what's interesting is that this guy, you know, uh, for years worked, you know, at this company and the chairman of the board of, of this company, Noblis, is Michael Chertoff, the former head of DHS, oh, um, who's really involved in a lot of these companies uh, that actively want there to be, will, will profit from a war on domestic terror. And we're also involved in a lot of these uh, uh, simulations, like with the TIP, the Transition Integrity Project, and groups like that. Chertoff was intimately involved in all of those that were about simulating unrest in the 2020 election and how every uh, simulation they did ended up with chaos uh, at some point between election day and inauguration day, which, what do you know, it happened. And then Chertoff actually was interviewed a couple days after uh, January 6th. And even though he knew the head of the Capitol Police well from this business, um, he says complete dereliction of duty, uh, you know, uh, of the Capitol Police, all this stuff. But then he says it's time to buckle up. 
about what January 6th means, implying that it's just the first of many um, events, which is pretty interesting. When you look at Chertoff's history, um, you know, Chertoff, for example, was involved uh, in a lot of very interesting um, investigations and activity in his career. And by investigations, I mean cover-ups, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a rabbit hole in and of itself. Totally. Itself. You know, cover-up of 9-11, cover-up of Enron, uh, and also yeah, the, the, the Whitewater scandal in the Clintons. He was the head mm. of that. I mean, his mom uh, worked for Mossad. You know, this is a well-connected <laughs> cool. dude. Uh, cool dude. You know, yeah. And what's really interesting, too, on, on that sense is that a really big player in this war in domestic terror um, is actually the anti Defamation League. Uh, I've talked about this a couple times because they're sure. uh, running sort of like the Silicon Valley hate lab where they're flagging what categorizes as, as hate online. Um, and they're also advising the FBI about who's a terrorist and who, uh, where informants should be placed, uh, who to target and all of this stuff. Um, and they're basically uh, a lobby for uh, Israel's government in a lot of ways and have a lot of ties uh, sort of to the same uh, uh, network that brought Jeffrey Epstein into existence, this sort of um, intelligence organized crime nexus that goes back uh, decades in the U.S., uh, back when the CIA teamed up with uh, Mayor Lansky and some of these mobsters uh, during World War II. Well, the precursor to the yeah. CIA. But, you know, it's it's sort of like that circuit, right, that are really involved in the war in domestic terror. Chertoff is definitely that. And it's really interesting that they haven't really gone after this police chief at all, uh, even in the wake of this coming out. His name hasn't even been mentioned um, and he resigned and they waited to let this come out, even though it was obvious to everyone after he's, uh, you know, well gone <laughs> and forgotten, I guess. Well, may have been obvious to everyone, but like no one, barely anyone's talking about it anymore. And I, I just find that kind of just creepy. It's like the, it just shows how much influence the media, even yeah. the alternative media has to just get people fixated on something like AOC acting stupid for like two weeks straight when it's like, Oh my God. Whatever, yeah. you know, what, like, it just seems like people's focus and what, where they're tuning their attention into now is, is not where, you know, where they should be. Well, it's like, this yeah. barely went on. This barely got any attention, this memo. And like, I think it's really super important to know that this happened. It's like, yeah. And this idea too, that like, um, that this was some kind of false flag. I think it's just really missing what really happened here. There are plenty of really amped up, you know, calm what you want, radicalized Q and honors, whatever that the, all the feds have to do is just like sort of amp someone up and yeah. get them to like entrap them, you know, to crack down on things more. It's like they did it already... to Muslim Americans for like 20 exactly. years and they just switched yeah. to their targeting now. Yeah. But this is even more real. It's like Q and on was a real movement here where it's yeah. like there was never like a radical Islamic, you know, movement here in the United States really. So it's like, they're, they can it's almost like more of a powder keg is what I'm saying like they could they could do the crackdown you're talking about more easily yeah and so far I guess the partisan gridlock in DC is one of the only things that's like holding that back it's like you know so I don't know I mean but that maybe is too optimistic uh, we've already talked about that <laughs> yeah no it's all right but I'm glad you brought up the excessive AOC coverage in independent media right now you know people should really uh, not be surprised that uh, a Congress person is a huge yeah. piece of shit hypocrite um exactly. you know get get over it um you know and maybe start listening to the people that told you back then that she was full of shit and that the democrats uh in the republican the establishment parties uh bat for the same team at the end of the day 
Um, you know, and once they're guys yeah. in the White House, they become apologists for the same policy. I mean, the, the, did we not have this go on in the Obama era? Do we really need to go through all the motions and hype it all up um, with AOC nonstop? Um, you know, you're just feeding her political celebrity anymore. I mean, if she's being a, a, a yeah. piece of crap, hypocrite, starver of attention, dismiss yeah, her, and even- you know, be like, you're useless, bye, instead of just constant clickbait. I mean, that's really what it is at this point, is like clickbait, so people can watch easy dunks on AOC. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's so much other stuff going on that, you know, people are really just trying to, you know, it looks like people trying to milk milk it for money and, and clicks instead of really trying to talk about the stuff that's important right now. When the world, at a time when the world is like on fire, uh, it's not exactly like we're in calm waters right now and it's it's okay to like, you know, uh, you know, go for the clickbait or whatever. I mean, if you have a big yeah. platform uh, or a decent platform even, I mean, you should be using it to try and cover some of this undercovered stuff. I mean, there's so much stuff going on that it's even hard for those of us actually trying in independent media to do it, to be able to get it all out, you know? Well, just this like Matt Gates story, not to distract us too much, but it's like that just to unpack. It's like you have to almost cover that, you know, daily to understand that. It's, so it's nuts. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That, the most interesting thread, I don't know if you saw this video, was that Scott Adams With, was yes. talking to his Mossad contact. Yeah. Well, at the Israeli consulate. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the Israeli no, consulates. It, it was Mossad, but it obviously was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Israeli embassies and consulates frequently used for espionage activity. Uh, you know, obvious examples of that. Uh, the Jonathan Pollard case, one of the most obvious examples. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's not that far of a stretch to say. Mossad type, but yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, though, it's crazy because Matt Gates came out and said, "I'm trying to be extorted by 25 million for for 25 million by this former Department of Justice guy." And then it turns out from these these texts with Scott Adams, the is the Israeli consulate guy, is saying, "Oh yeah, that was us. We tried to get him for 25 million, you know." And that is so crazy in light of the Epstein scandal, you know, with like you know Israeli intelligence and U.S. and CIA intelligence linked, um, you know, uh, pedophile sexually blackmailing people in the U.S. Um, for, for the gain of, of foreign and, and, you know, intelligence agencies and all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even really, that didn't really come up that much. I didn't see many other outlets pick that story up. I think it was the American conservative that originally carried that. Uh, kudos to them. But, you know, like a lot of other um, Israel-linked uh, espionage scandals in the U.S., uh, if that's really what it was, it'll probably get covered up pretty quick. Or they want to take Matt Gates down for some particular reason. Um, but it seems to me just like another U.S. Uh, political power play between different factions. Um, I'll be talking about this in some upcoming articles. Um, Matt Gates is very much involved in the Peter Thiel uh, faction network there um, in terms of, you know, uh, tech companies that want to be really involved with U.S. national security um, and U.S. military hegemony and AI and all of that stuff. Uh, he's part of that circuit. Uh, and they, they obviously have uh, competitors. And, you know, he uh, was definitely on some sort of... Uh, uh, I don't know, rising star role after the Trump era for that particular faction of, of right-leaning voters yeah. in the U.S. And so there's some effort to either try and bring him to heel or uh, get him to bat for another faction or something. I don't know. So Or he was always, maybe he was always compromised with whatever he was dabbling with sexually. And yeah. that's maybe why he was a useful tool. And then someone just pulled the rug out. Yeah. Well, it, you never know with these people. Totally. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. It's um and and what he I mean even if he didn't do anything illegal it's like he did seem like he was some kind of sex addict like 
I mean, and just sort of brazenly so. So it's like... No, it definitely seems that way. Um, based on information that came out previous to this event yeah. and, and stuff like that, that definitely seems uh, to be the case. But it's worth pointing out in the case of blackmail, you know, I've written a lot about this uh, because of the Epstein scandal, but it, it seems to be... Uh, just as common, if not more common, that you compromise someone before they get into a position of power or real political power, and then you elevate them because you control them from the off, from the beginning. You know, it's easier mm -hmm. than trying to compromise someone when they're already powerful, because then they might be able to resist you or whatever. Who knows uh, if they if their platform's too big? So, um, or other things could go wrong. Who knows? But it's definitely seems to be, you know, a, a tendency that people who are compromised initially get elevated, uh, and selected for particular positions, um, because it's all about control at the end of the day. Ah, crazy stuff. So, uh, we've, we've almost gone an hour and a half. So I wanted to cover some of the stuff about the border crisis really quick. Sure. So, um, you know, talking about the hypocrisy, I mean, uh, not just of AOC, but really all. <laughs> Democrats at this point who were screaming about kids in cages. AOC was not the only one, uh, though current coverage may have you thinking that. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of hypocrites out there um, who were complain rightly complaining about the situation on the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden it's Biden and the situation's worse than ever. And they're, you know, apologists for it, basically. Um but I really wanted to point out that, you know, a lot of people know that there's a lot going on there and the, these facilities are really full and there, there's controversy about it, um, obviously. Part of that, of course, being because of the Biden administration wouldn't even let mainstream media into these facilities in for like months. That's really crazy. Um, like, why won't you let them in to film, you know, and even when some of them did get in, they weren't allowed to talk to the children and they had people in their face and all of that stuff. They're treating mainstream media like that there. Um, you know, to me, that's a red flag. But the one thing I wanted to, to underscore here as we wrap up is this new, uh, move, uh, to start housing these children, allegedly because the facilities are overflowing that have been used previously, they're now being housed at U.S. military bases within the U.S. Uh, I don't know if you had heard about that. It really hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, but I find it insanely concerning. Um, one of the things that I thought was really weird is that um, based on how this has been reported previously, you think that the people the government agency that's responsible for these decisions would be DHS or, or Customs and Border Patrol or ICE or something like that. Yeah. But actually, the move to have these military bases opened up for these migrant children uh, was HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, is actually the one that was uh, getting the Department of Defense to open military bases to house migrant children, which has not happened before. Um, or it didn't happen during the Trump era. I don't remember hearing it happen before during the time this crisis has gone on. It's worth pointing out that this crisis has really been at this crazy level, uh, really ever since uh, the Obama era because of the coups in Honduras, for example, which was 2009. Um, for years, a lot of uh, the migrants crossing the border are fleeing Honduras um, or other countries in Central America where there's either proxy wars or, you know, uh, US backed dictators and like, Honduras is like that. So 
Um, you know, it's definitely, uh, not necessarily been the same forever, the situation there, right? It's been getting, been getting progressively worse over time, but I found it weird that HHS was involved. I mean, maybe someone who knows more than me can, can let me know why it's HHS ordering this, but I think it's, it's weird. And if you stop to think about it, you know, these children are unaccompanied. Their parents might be in other countries. No one knows where their kids are. And honestly, we don't really know how these kids are kept track of, how successful that is. Uh, and obviously these mm-hmm. kids are really vulnerable. Um, I just think it's a little, uh, you know, every time you see something that's a little out of place, like, huh, is that really who's in charge of that? Is that really how this should be? Um, when it comes to the national security state and unaccompanied children, um, you know, just because of my work on, you know, Epstein and intelligence and child trafficking and things like that, I definitely get, uh, you know, a little concerned. And if you look at the people, uh, the guy, for example, that runs the uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, which was set up um, well, the international branch of it was uh, announced by Hillary Clinton and Tony Blair's wife, Cherry Blair and stuff. So obviously backed by uh, nice people. Um, you know, Ernie Allen, before he was put in charge of this center, was involved in covering up uh, basically the Belgian equivalent of Epstein, um, which was the, the Dutro affair, where basically all these uh, Belgian elite would come to this house and, and, you know, rape and abuse these girls that were chained up in, in, in the basement by this guy. And this huge cover up on like every level. Um, and one of the main detectives, uh, refused to look at the evidence, helped cover it up. And then he becomes police commissioner. And, you know, all these people get, um, you know, promoted that helped cover it up and, and whatever. And Ernie Allen, the guy that was later put in charge of the center, which runs Amber Alert stuff now, he advised the Belgian government basically in how to do that cover up, which is really creepy. Um, he's also on the board of this creepy NGO called Thorn that you may have known because I did an article about it that has backing from Ashton Kutcher and some other people, <laughs> um, which is also super shady and is a way of getting um, all this really creepy technology to, to police under the guise of fighting child trafficking. Um but also like Amber Alert stuff, uh, people may know from back a couple years ago, the controversy with Haiti, uh, the Clintons and this woman named Laura Silsby, who was actually caught trafficking children from Haiti. She has now, uh, is now in charge of a company that is involved in issuing Amber Alerts. That's fucking insane. Uh, we also have, uh, the current president is a rapist and the previous president was a rapist. And this is the kind of government we have right now taking migrant children, um, in, in mass that don't have anyone advocating for them. The media can't access them. Lawyers can't access them, right? And they're now being sent to military bases. How did Ted Cruz uh, get like such good footage of it? Like he seemed like the only guy who actually got footage of it. Do you remember seeing that clip that was went viral? Like how recent was that? Like two weeks ago. No, I didn't see that actually. Mm-mm. Yeah, he got like some of the most incriminating looking footage, and someone tried to block him, and. uh yeah, it was weird that like he was the only one able to get through it. Just, I mean, not that to say it was staged, you know, but it's just like. No, but isn't he a Texas senator? So maybe he has more leeway to be able to get farther than most be, people yeah. into those facilities than say someone from sure. Reuters or NBC or whatever that just has a press badge. I it guess if been, you're yeah. a senator of the state, you you can haggle a little more, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, well, it's just weird how some people like him have taken on this sort of weird role of being like controlled opposition, sort of like Matt Gates and, and some of these other people. They act like they're anti-establishment, you know, and then, but it's like, he doesn't really care about it. Yeah. It's just sort of fascinating. 
I mean, this this whole thing with the kids, I just think is so crazy because I think a lot of people just don't realize how nuts this is. Yeah. Based on the rates of just kids, not talking about families or adults or whatever, of kids that are, are being held in these facilities based on what's happened just since Biden's been in office. They're expecting that by the end of this fiscal year, which ends not even at the end of the calendar year, like in a, in a couple more months, uh, 184,000 kids will be, you know, held uh, either in these border facilities, which I guess are overflowing now, and they're increasingly using military bases. So at first it was two military bases in Texas. Now it's an additional military base in California. They're thinking of adding Fort Benning in Georgia, potentially, which of course had that, uh, they had a shooting and stuff, right? Not that long ago. Um, and then another base in California. But what's really alarming to me, um, are the first two bases they picked. Uh, so, uh, it's Fort Bliss. And then Joint Base San Antonio. And in the case of um, Joint Base San Antonio, um, according to the San Antonio Express, uh, you know, a local publication there, Joint Base San Antonio has the worst record of sexual assaults of all joint bases in the country. Wow. Yikes. Does it say any more data than that? Like sexual assaults, like rape? I mean. Yeah. Mm hmm. Jeez. Yeah, uh, based on these uh, uh, different, let's see, it's a pen, it's a Pentagon study, so that's the Pentagon saying it itself. Mm-hmm. God damn. Yeah, over eight hundred cases in three years. What? Insane. Yeah, and that is where that's the first place the Biden administration was like, yeah, let's put a bunch of kids there. Wild. Um. Yeah, and then the other one is Fort Bliss. Um. And same thing, you have. Um, headline from January 15th of this year, uh, Fort Bliss soldier accused of three sexual assaults, um, including the rape of a soldier that was later found dead. And uh, then a separate story that I think is even more concerning that actually just broke two days ago. Um, Staff sergeant rapes soldier's wife, goes on to rape his own child after army gives him slap on the wrist. Apparently this guy was a serial rapist at this base and they knew about it since 2006 and he kept getting caught over and over and over again and they did nothing until he raped his own kid at the base jesus and this and, and so obviously that base has a leadership problem where they ignore sexual assault when it happens and they're putting kids there i mean this is so nuts i i i don't even know i haven't seen this reported like anywhere I guess I went ahead to do an article about it because I just find it really insane that no one's talking about um, how nuts this is, especially if, you know, the ki kids in cages, the stuff under Trump was so horrible. The military base stuff is a whole different level. Um, and if you actually care about those kids, I mean, I think it's really important we start saying something about it because it's insane. Um, on a separate point, did you know that one of the uh, biggest networks in the world for child pornography are, is the system of the Department of Defense in the U.S.? They constantly have so much child porn on their servers that it's like uh, constantly rakes, rakes in, <laughs> ranks in like the top uh, child porn servers in the world. That's nuts. Yeah, not Why the fuck would you put all these kids under the, you know, uh, put them on, on these bases, dude? Um, you know, in the third base in California, I, I didn't really see, uh, <clears throat> a lot of like 
you know, rapes and stuff related to that in the same that these Texas bases are. It's worth pointing out too that Fort Hood is also in Texas where all those like rapes and murders at like crazy rates have been going on. So obviously military and bases in Texas seem like extra creepy. Um, but what's interesting is that Camp Roberts, which is the one, the third one that's been approved, uh, the one in California is a big testing ground for DARPA technology. Um, which is kind of, uh, interesting because DARPA's involved in a lot of, uh, shady stuff, including a lot of medical stuff. And it makes you wonder, HHS being the ones to send those kids there, you know, they're involved in a lot of partnerships with DARPA now, especially, um, since 2018 on the work of my good friend, Robert Cadlick, who, um, if you've followed my work for a while, you'll know, <laughs> uh, who he is, um, but it's definitely an, a story that's not getting a lot of coverage. And if you think about, too, like the war crimes in terms of uh, against children that have been committed by by U.S. soldiers abroad. This one in California, by the way, the DARPA place is also where mo- most soldiers train before going to Afghanistan specifically. Oh. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you're having... Uh, that happen when you've had cases, for example, of U.S. military uh, figure or, or uh, you know, soldiers and U.S. military contractors being involved in child prostitution in Afghanistan. In the case of Dine Corps, for example, I mean, that's probably the most famous example of that or the pedophile warlords that the U.S. military uh, supports in Afghanistan and the soldiers that call that out uh, get let go. Um, you know, I mean, that's been reported on by the New York Times, you know, that's nothing new. So this, this is the organization we're sending potentially thousands of children to with no way to keep tabs on them. Uh, if they disappear, for example, um, that's mental, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really unreal to think about them bringing these kids to different military bases. I mean, it just seems like they're just going to get lost, you know, through the cracks of the system somehow. I just don't understand how they're keeping track of them. And when are they, are they planning on returning them like across the border? It's it just, doesn't say, I mean, no one really knows it. They're just holding it's just them. really, yeah, it's really mysterious. And that's what's um so bothersome about it. I mean, it's, you know, I didn't even realize they had the authority to do that. I just thought that like the border patrol or, you know, whoever's, you know, operating on the border had the ability to detain these types of people, but not like like on military bases. Just very strange. Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely some weird stuff going on, and I really hope more people start talking about it because it's not just about the hypocrisy of AOC or whatever. What's happening there? There's clearly some weird stuff going on, and you know, the fact that there's been kids who have uh, it. it uh, their parents find out they're in those camps and they're living in the States. I can't remember what case this was exactly, but it was some advocate group, um, you know, uh, talking about this on, on, on mainstream news saying that there were these, the, the parents of these kids that were in these camps and they couldn't get the kids back. They're like, we are legal residents and our children, uh, are in your camp and please release them to us and nothing. Well, if you if your facility is overflowing, wouldn't you like release them immediately? Do they not know where they are? Why aren't they letting them out? Yeah. Uh, and apparently in that case, uh, it was only a fluke that the parents were able to find out because these kids passed through somewhere and someone solved them and, and called the parents or something. It wasn't like the government notifying them. So, you know, yeah. uh, if they ask the kids, who's your mom or whatever, do you have relatives in the U.S.? Are they even asking those questions? Like, obviously, there's so much weird stuff going on um, in the, the sheer amount of kids um, and how insanely, you know, uh, 
not good for kids, intelligence agencies in, <laughs> in the U.S. are, you know? I mean, this is just, I mean, it, it's like, I don't even have words for this shit anymore, you know? Uh, it's like so unreal. Um, and, you know, I've really, through my work, look at how dark uh, the U.S. government can be, you know? And it really, it really unsettles me um, that there's no coverage of this, including from people who um, you know, claim to be really concerned about this and have platforms and independent media, um, not covering the stuff, um, you know, at least in a way that I think is really meaningful. And that is really disappointing, man. Um, well, it's just, it's such a, a politicized topic already. I mean, illegal immigration is something that, you know, is just so loaded on both sides. And it's, it's sort of weird to see them switch from saying that these were kids in cages in concentration camps um, when Trump was still in office to now saying these aren't well, yeah. concentration camps and they're, and they're fine. And it's like, how did they think that they were going to get away with that? And somehow there's a bunch of people just, yeah, just parroting it and fully following along and acting like it's fine now. It's, it's really, really wild to watch. Yeah. Well, this, this military base news was we're only really covered by right-leaning news. Yeah, see? I mean, that's the that's a problem. The fact that they started putting kids on military bases, what the fuck? I mean, shouldn't that be of concern to the left, yeah. dude, that was supposedly super worried about the welfare of these kids and their access to, uh, you know, lawyers and, and their ability to be reconnected with their parents and all this stuff? I mean, where the fuck is that now? They're get, they're, they've involved the military, dude. Um, You know? It's just, uh, it's so nuts. I mean, if you know about like the war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan about like parents and their children and like all this horrible stuff that went on and you're going to be like, yeah, in, in, in the rapes that are documented to gone have gone on at these same bases and the people that were there had offered no accountability to people, um, and let them just go on being serial rapists on the base, uh, for decades and you're putting kids there. I mean, why the fuck? I mean, it just, it is honestly, um, just such a good example, I think, of um, how uh, poor media coverage can be in the U.S. and also just people's lack of apathy um, when there isn't outrage that's generated by the media a lot of times. Like if the media yeah. doesn't cover something or doesn't say you should be outraged about this, people just don't give a shit. Yeah, it's you like know? the media, you know, since the Trump era, it's like even these mainstream media networks, all of them now play into this much more intense agitprop narrative when it's convenient for, you know, I guess to throw tar at Trump or whatever. And now it's like a not convenient. So, you know, it's, there's nothing driving that really happening. Right. Um, so I think that that's part of, part of it. Um, and then the right, the reason why that stuff's probably not getting that much coverage is because overall it sort of seems hypocritical. It's like, they don't really care about illegal immigration and they're kind of doing it on a, in a similar way, you know, to throw tar at Biden. So ultimately you don't, you just don't, it's hard to just find and sift through and like actually get valuable commentary on what's going on or just good coverage of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. Sucks. Well, on that note, I'd like to wrap up and uh, say that you certainly don't fall into that category of uh, journalists. So where can people find uh, your stuff and follow your work for uh, awesome commentary and analysis and also history lessons on a variety of interesting topics? <laughs> well, thanks, Whitney. Um, you can well, I'm just a fan, so sorry <laughs> <laughs> that came across uh, weird. <laughs> uh, you can find my stuff at um, at SoundCloud, uh, where we host Media Roots Radio, or you can find Media Roots Radio, which is a podcast I do four times a month with my sister, 
Abby Martin, my co-host. Um, you can find it on any platform, really, uh, that that hosts podcasts. Um, and I don't want to name drop all the sort of corporate ones. So I guess let's say Stitcher. Um, you can find it on. I'll just drop my Patreon page also because we we also have a subscription on Patreon where if you subscribe, you get access to uh, one premium episode per month. And uh, we have this sort of really long history series on the Freemasonic history of the United States that uh, episode seven of that comes out this month at the end of uh, April. Um, and you could get that uh, if you go to patreon.com slash media roots radio. Um, and my, you can go to my Twitter too at fluorescent gray, but it's mostly just sort of like angry. Um, yeah. Shit on there. It's not, not the best. Uh, it's hard to do anything else on Twitter <laughs> anymore. You know, I have like over a hundred thousand followers now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I have to be yeah, like really much. careful about what I tweet about now. I can't just be like, Oh, <laughs> fuck this person. You know, I can't really do that anymore unless I want to give like a lot of flack. <laughs> half the time. Great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, basically. Yeah. But you know, that's all right. It has its ups and it's down and it's, uh, I can't even, <laughs> Well, maybe it is a good time to wrap up the podcast because I can't even like <laughs> say say basic words. So anyway, uh, for everyone uh, tuning in, thanks a lot. And also thanks for uh, waiting an extra week for this podcast because it is a little late. I was in the process of uh, moving. Uh, people, some of you may know, I talked about it in the last podcast. I moved out of Chile, um, but I recently uh, just moved into a, a house where I'll be at uh, more or less uh, longer term, so no longer living out of uh, suitcases with my toddler. Uh, so things, uh, content will be more regular from now on. But I guess as a sort of bonus, uh, Robbie and I talked for almost uh, two hours, so you almost get like two <laughs> podcasts in one with this one. So um, anyway, for everyone listening, thanks a lot, um, whether you're listening on Rockfin or another platform. And catch you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>